0: So we're in a preaching series at the moment uh, from the book of Acts, and last week Josh shared um, out of Acts twenty twenty-one um, about the Ephesian elders, who it was kind of this really emotional farewell on Paul's part, um, where he he departed from Ephesus, and we've got the map of uh, map up in a moment, and. When it's there, you can see Ephesus kind of in the top middle of the map. And then uh, Paul is about to leave Ephesus and it's this really, really emotional farewell. Why? Because he knows he's not coming back. He just has this deep sense in his spirit that this is like a one-way mission and, and he's probably never going to see his friends again. And so um, it's kind of like one of those Final word to your friend, kind of speeches where there's just a lot of meaning and, and, and gravitas in in what he shares with with the elders, and um, something out of out of that as he left Ephesus that that wasn't really covered last week very very strongly was um, on his way from Ephesus to Jerusalem, he stops in Paul stopped in Caesarea. And there was a prophet there named Agabus. And I think this is kind of pertinent to our uh, scripture today that we're going to be covering. Uh, he, he, there's this prophet there. His name's Agabus. Agabus takes Paul's belt, and he ties his own hands and, fe- and feet, and he, and he says to Paul, this is what's going to happen to you if you keep going to Jerusalem. You're going to be bound. The Gentiles you are going to, you're going to fall into the hands of the Gentiles. Yet, Paul... Decides that this is something that God is compelling him to do, that he, he needs to continue on his journey. He, he feels compelled to go to Jerusalem, and so he does. And that is how Paul's third missionary journey ends, is, um, is with those words from, from Agabus. And um, in Acts 21, verse 17, is where we pick up the story. And dive right in. It says, When we had come to Jerusalem, and this is Luke writing on Paul's behalf, the brothers received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. After greeting them, he related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they glorified God. Now, James, this James, was the brother of Jesus. This isn't James who was killed by Herod earlier in the book of Acts. This is a different James. And he's the brother of Jesus. He's now the, the kind of the leader of the church in Jerusalem. And um, it's really awesome that Paul gets there. He shares what's been going on in his, his missionary journeys and uh, the things, the work that God has been doing amongst the Gentiles. and says that the, the, the elders celebrated this. They, they glorified God for what God was doing amongst the Gentiles. And, and it's, it's really kind of it's a warm reception that Paul and, and his entourage received there. We know from the book of Romans that, uh, and from later in the book of Acts, Paul's testimony to Felix, that him and his, his friends were bringing a, a gift to the church in Jerusalem. So a financial gift from the, the church in Asia, and, and so we see there's, there's a lot of goodwill between Paul and his missionary cohort and, and the church in Jerusalem. This is probably Paul's fifth visit to Jerusalem to, to visit um, James. And, and so it's like buddies on, on a mission together. You know They want to they see the same things uh, achieved. They want to see the gospel advancing. Um, Notice Paul's character as well, in that Luke doesn't say that um, Paul related the things that he was doing. It says Paul related the things that God was doing. And so there's this keen sense of awareness that God is at work, that this isn't just a work of man, but that this is God doing powerful things amongst the Gentiles, that God is doing powerful things to advance the church um, across the world. Beyond Jerusalem, remember that the, kind of the theme of the book of Acts is Jerusalem, Judea, and to the ends of the earth. And, and this is kind of what we're seeing, what Paul is, is relating to these elders. Um, but as, as the story continues, we see that there's some underlying issues. And, and as James starts sharing, we see some of this come out. James what says, they said to, said to Paul... Um, This is in verse 20. You see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. They are all zealous for the law, and they've been told about you, that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs. Now, to say that there were thousands of Jews in Jerusalem, I think, is an accurate kind of de- depiction of the earlier part of the book of Acts where it was recorded on the day of Pentecost, 3,000 people got saved, and then there are many other instances where it says many were added to their numbers. And so um, the, the Greek word there for thousands is myriad, it, it, it's many thousands or maybe tens of thousands. And, and what's fascinating, what they're sharing here is that these Jews, um, many of them, still follow Jewish customs and and the Jewish ways. They circumcise their kids and they observe the Sabbath and they don't eat crayfish. And, you know, the things that are inherently Jewish. And this in itself... Uh, is maybe for us difficult to understand, or we're not quite. It doesn't comment on whether they saw this as right or as wrong, um, whether it was these people maybe didn't have a full understanding of the Christ's sufficiency and the, and his his work on the cross, um, or if it's maybe just a cultural continuation where there was some concession made for these people to continue in their. Um, cultural practices um, as Jewish people. And and I think that's fairly familiar to us when when we think of modern day missions where um, modern missionaries don't impose cultural practices on people who they're reaching. And in the same way, as much as Christianity was birthed out of Judaism, perhaps they felt like, well, this isn't something that we need to cause an issue out of. But there was an issue because there were some who were telling them um, that uh, sharing um, rumors about Paul, that Paul was not um, making this concession, that Paul was requiring Jewish people to, to stop Uh, circumcising the kids or to stop observing the Sabbath, which really is not true. We don't see any evidence of that in in Scripture. We don't see anywhere in Scripture where, where, where Paul is making demands on Jewish people. What he does do, however, is he says, Jewish people don't impose demands on the Gentiles. That's not something that we want to do. We don't want to impose law because Christ has set us free from the law. So don't try and come and make the Gentiles do all sorts of things that, that they're not required to do under the law. And these people who are coming in spreading rumors, we don't, at this point in the story, don't know who they are. But there are people there who are, who've gone ahead of Paul and who have spread these malicious rumors about him, saying, Paul, you know, they've twisted the truth, and Paul demands this, and Paul is expecting this of Jewish people, and it's causing unrest amongst the, the Jewish believers. They're, they're feeling perturbed by this, um, it doesn't say so in the text, but we, we can infer that it runs the risk of, of threatening their, their confidence in, in Jesus, their faith, and, and causing them to question their faith, perhaps. And, and so this it just isn't a good thing. And so they come up with a plan, and they say in verse 22, What then is to be done? They, that's the Jewish Christians, will certainly hear that you have come. So we've got to do something do therefore what we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Now, as part of Jewish culture and and, um, and religious practice and, and and Jewish worship, men would undertake vows from time to time. And an example of that would be the Nazarite vow that we see in Numbers six, which this seems to be to fit with that uh, description. It says, take these men, purify yourself along with them, and pay their expenses. Now, paying the, these expenses would not just have been paying for a haircut. Um, paying for these expenses was quite an extensive thing. They, um, when we read in Numbers 6, there are a number of sacrifices that need to be made for the, to... like. Um, fulfill this Nazarite vow. There are lambs that need to be sacrificed, so there'd be a lamb for each person, there'd be a ram for each each of these guys that, that Paul would need to pay for, there'd be an ewe for each of these guys. It's kind of like a whole sheep family. Like, I don't know, they could have just said in the in laws, like, get a, a family of sheep. with like a lamb and an ewe and, and a ram. And then there's like all sorts of baked goods that go along with it, um, and there's oil and wafers and grain offerings. There's all sorts of things. This is a lot of stuff. And they and say to Paul, Paul, like, you, you put your money where your mouth is and demonstrate to these people that you still respect the law and, and that you're, you're kind of into this. And which they're kind of talking on his behalf, Um, It doesn't say that he was as into it as they want him to portray, but nevertheless, um, that's what they do. They say, thus, you do this, and all will know that there is nothing in what they've been told about you, but that you yourself also live in observance of the law. Now, this is not entirely untrue because... Um, it, we do see in chapter 18 of, of the book of Acts that Paul, Paul also undertook a vow and he also shaved his head. Josh commented on that the other day, uh, a few Sundays ago, um, that Paul cut his hair. Josh seemed to be more interested in the fact that Paul had a haircut than, than that. I think Josh resonates with that. Um, it says, um, and, then, and then James carries on talking. And he says, as for the Gentiles who have believed, we've sent a letter without judgment that they should abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. And so what he's saying here is really pointing back to a previous conversation, a previous conversation where Paul had visited Jerusalem, where there had been discussions undertaken by the leaders of the church. And what do we do? with these Gentiles because we it, like, there's a long history of God at work through the nation of Israel. And there's a long history before that. But particularly, the way that God had been at work through the nation of Israel was, was pretty clear and pretty specific. And God had made it clear what His expectations were in terms of law and requirements and, and holiness. And suddenly, you get these these people that are entering into this, this promise that had been made to, to Abraham that you know, your descendants will be a blessing to all nations. And, and so all the nations are coming in. But now it was kind of a question of, like what do we do with these people? Do we require them to get circumcised? Do we require them to observe the Sabbath? Do they need to stop eating shellfish and stop going to the Korean barbecue restaurant for prawns? We... It, 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 this was a true dilemma for them. Um, there, there was a false dilemma that, the, that the, um, the people who are spreading the rumors, whoever they were, were bringing in this false rumor. And the false rumor was, it's kind of Moses versus Paul. And like Paul is, is telling the people to forsake Moses. It's basically apostatize reject Moses, uh, it's, it's kind of the, the sentiment is Paul's, Paul's view of Moses is wicked. And if Moses was around, Moses would not think highly of Paul. That's kind of the false dilemma that's being created. Now, a false dilemma is when you reduce, like you overly reduce an issue to, to two issues. And, and we see that a lot in America, right? We see that in a lot of ways where we see these polarized views develop around topics, around issues, and you, if one party, um, whether it's political or, or whatever, says this is the way, the other party will adopt the polar opposite simply because they don't agree with that party. And it just makes for a lot of weirdness and, and creates uh, the inability to engage in, in healthy conversation, which is, is really what the, the elders were, were doing really well here. And, and they'd been working these things out, and they'd been, they'd been chatting through it. But, but people had come in and started polarizing. It's like the whole, the whole Pepsi-Coke thing. I could never understand that. Um, at, particularly as a South African... Um, the whole part, partly because Pepsi, there were sanctions in South Africa when I lived there. So Pepsi wasn't there, but Coke ignored the sanctions and they still sold Coke. So everyone was just like, well, it's Coke. But like we'd watch these American TV ads, There was like, you know, the, the Cola Wars. It'd be like, they taste the same, surely. Like, you know, but and then people would be like, oh, I swear on my deathbed, it's got to be Pepsi or it's got to be one or the other. And it's like, come on, it's a soft drink. You know, it's not. What if you like Sprite? Or what if, you want to, what if you rather want to drink water? So, and, and not, to, not to trivialize this, but th- that's kind of what's happening, is it's taking, taking something that is not mutually exclusive and, and ripping it apart and set, like setting it against itself. And so it's, it says that James was, James was basically saying, guys, as, as much as this is the plan, as much as we want to see Paul go in and do this to kind of show goodwill toward the Jews, we want to make it very clear that we still stand by our previous conviction, that we do not intend to impose the law on the Gentiles. We do not expect the Gentiles to have to get circumcised and observe the Sabbath and all of these things. We, do, we are committed to, to that. And so he makes that really clear. And then it says in verse 20, 28, says, Paul took the men. The next day, he purified himself along with them and went into the temple, giving notice when the days of purification would be fulfilled and the offering presented for each one of them. Man, Paul just demonstrates extreme grace in this moment and, and says, you know what? I'm going to do this. I'm going I'm to take these guys. We don't know the details of the vow that they were taking. Um, it's pretty... Commentators... Um, suggest that it's unlikely that Paul would have followed the same vow that they were under, but the, the connection was that them in their vow and him having just come out of Gentile territory would both have need, needed to enter a purification process to be able to go into the temple. And Paul wanted to be able to go into the temple. He wanted to be able to minister there and, and share and discourse with the people there. That was his practice. And so... To be able to do that, he would have needed to to get purified anyway, to go through the purification process in any way. But as much as we don't see a lot of detail in this, it still begs a massive question in, in most people's minds. If you have any understanding of Jewish law, Jewish practice, if you understand and know the the gospel of Jesus, and, and you know that the, the law was rendered obsolete when Jesus came and died on the cross, and that Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of the law, m- means that any purification process is redundant. So is Paul being inconsistent in his practice of the law, in his an- an- adherence to the law? Why would Paul, knowing that the mosaic regime is now obsolete, why would he put himself through this? Is, would this not be an offense to Jesus? Is this, is this something that like, would send the wrong message to, to the Gentile believers? Um, or was he just totally arbitrary in the way that he approached his, uh, uh, approach the law? Did he just kind of pick and choose randomly? Um, I think this is, this is a question that for us as believers today is, is, is probably just as apparent as we see and wrestle with in this text. Um, the amount of times that I've been asked by people um, over the years of my Christian, Christian walk, like, how, how do you decide which of the Old Testament laws to follow? Like, what is you know, what's up with you Acquiring a particular sexual um, ethic, but then you, you don't have an issue with wearing clothes that's made of two different types of fabric? Like, you know, wh- wh- where does that come from? Like, why choose one and not the, the other? Why, why are you particular about certain things, but then other things you're just totally open-handed with? And it's not that arbitrary... Uh, one of the greatest explanations for, for this that I've come across is, is out of Calvin's Institutes. Now, Calvin was a 16th century reformer, and he, he taught in response to a lot of dysfunctional and almost arbitrary stuff that had kind of built up in the church uh, during the Dark Ages. And it, um, Calvin taught that... Um, Well, as he studied the the New Testament and studied Paul's writings, he kind of started realizing a pattern, and he noticed a pattern. Um, He he noticed, as I said that word, it just sounded so foreign to me in my own head, and I was like, oh yeah, it's because I've been listening to Americans so long. But so he, he started noticing a pattern emerge in the way that Paul dealt with the law. And this isn't a pattern that we see that is expressed in the Old Testament, but in the, in the way that Paul addresses the law and the New Testament as a whole, we see three types of law emerge. We see three kind of classifications of the law. And again, in the Old Testament, these classifications, would have, there would have been a lot of bleeding over the edges between these classifications. But... As Jesus came in and fulfilled the law, it started kind of shining a spotlight on t- different types of law. And, and, and here, are the, here's, here are the categories that Calvin identified. He, he identified laws that related to civil or governmental law, which w- related to the way the nation of Israel was, was led, was governed. Um, these laws were the laws that set the nation of Israel Apart, where God said, I want this people to be a testimony of my grace and my love and my faithful covenant love. And I want them to stand apart from the nations around them so that the nations would be able to look at these people and see, oh man, these people are distinct. And so these, these laws related to all sorts of things. They related to the way you dress. It related to... Um, criminal activity and how to deal with that. It related to um, engagement between different people groups. Um, it related to food and, and, and food practices. And all of these things were really good and important to the nation of Israel at that time. Um, the second type of, type of law were the ceremonial laws. And, and these related to the sacrificial system. Now, the sacrificial system was central to the way that the Jewish people worshipped, expressed their faith, um, the way that they were able to be in the presence of a holy God as unholy people. And, and it was basically the transactional approach of you've done something wrong, you need to pay, you need to pay for that. Somebody's got to pay. And so a lamb or a goat or, or whatever it was was, was sacrificed to, to pay the price for that sin because the, um, the, the cost of sin is death. The, uh, the wages of sin is death. And so this system was designed for people to be able to be in right relationship with God. And then the third type of law was moral laws and moral laws basically related to just like simply what is right and wrong creating a distinction between intrinsically in the fabric of our being what do we know to be right and wrong and what's fascinating about these moral laws for me is that so many of these things while the civic laws while uh, sacrificial laws are very cultural the The moral laws are things that seem to be inherent in in many in most cultures and so there are very few cultures where you where it would just be acceptable to take somebody else's wife That is a no no it's it's you know very broadly accepted I would say like I, very 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 broadly accepted <laughs> that it is inappropriate to kill someone okay so we we deeply like as God has knitted into the fabric of who we are as humanity as people made in his image of certain things that are just right and wrong respecting and honoring life and and other people's property and and that sort of thing and there, the Ten Commandments are a good example where most of the Ten Commandments relate to moral law. Now these three categories, for us, um, this is where it starts to untangle for, for us as, as believers, and where we start to see logic in the way that Paul approached the law, um, where in, for the, In Old Testament Israel, these laws were just kind of woven together because church and state and nationhood and a national identity and relationship to God was all intertwined that started to to become distinct in in a, in a different way after Jesus. Why? because Jesus fulfilled the law um, it says it says in Romans 7, Galatians 3, that, that we've been released from the law. As, as believers, we are no longer under the law. But the law, the law is still there. It's still playing a role. There's, there's still something going on with the law. Um, John Wesley, a great Methodist evangelist, he used to say, you've you got to preach the law until people are like bent over crying. And then you've got to come with grace. Because people don't understand grace until they understand the law. And so the law is a pedagogue. The law is a teacher. The law is like a school teacher that, that teaches you this is right, wrong, and like, do it like this, do it like, not like that. And then, out of that process, you start to recognize your need for grace, your need for, for something, something different. And that is exactly what Jesus said. In Matthew 5.17, we we told Jesus himself, he came to fulfill the law, he says. He didn't come to abolish the, the law and just saying like, oh, the law doesn't exist anymore and it's, it doesn't, doesn't matter. He said not one dot, not one iota of the law. And those are just like very small characters in the Hebrew alphabet. Um, and he said like not even just like a little smidgen of the law is, is going gonna, is gonna to be totally irrelevant. But everything is going to be fulfilled in me. Now, how does that happen? What does that mean? It means that when Jesus came, all the law pointed to who Jesus was. All the law pointed to what Jesus was going to achieve for us. All the law pointed to how Jesus was going to work out salvation for everyone, including the Gentiles. And this is where it gets really awesome because, first of all, on a civic level, Jesus gives us access to the kingdom of God. And so on a civic level, all of those laws have been addressed in the fact that Jesus came and he establishes a new kingdom for us to enter. We're no longer uh, our, our national identity is not in the country that we live in. Our national identity is not in the, the accent that we have or the, the foods that we eat. Our national identity is in the fact that we are citizens of heaven when we allow Jesus to become our Lord and Savior. What happens in, in this world, the... Um, the agendas of this world become secondary to the Jesus' agenda for the kingdom. And so when we look at Jesus' teaching, Jesus teaches a, a new ethic. He teaches a new way that, that draws us into and gives us an identity in him. A few weeks ago, um, when I pulled up at church in the morning on my bicycle, there was a Dude, I don't know how many of you guys saw him standing outside with a big, like, protest sign, placard. God hates divorce and some other stuff on it. And I went up to him and I said, "Dude, what's going on? Like, you know, what are you, what are you doing?" And and he said to me, "Well, you guys don't follow. Your church doesn't follow the law, and 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 you guys just." allow people to do anything rampantly. And so you, how can you call yourselves Christians? And, and he went on this tirade of like, basically trying to reinstitute the law uh, in, in, a, in a New Testament sense. And, and eventually I just said, dude, like, you don't know the stories of the people in this church you don't what you're coming with is is just it's heaping condemnation and, and pain and that's totally not what Jesus intended that's not that was not his intention when he came he came to offer a newness of life a new kingdom secondly Jesus is our new high priest which, by the way, the guy said to me, he's moving down to Los Angeles, so he won't be around anymore. I was going to suggest, if you guys see him again, you, we should just like mob him and love him and take him donuts and, and that sort of thing. But then he was like, yeah, yeah, I'm moving down to Los Angeles. So I was like, oh, that's a bummer. <laughs> so secondly, Jesus is our new high priest the, the, the ceremonial laws illustrate for us god 's god 's perfection and our need for perfection and as I explained earlier on, God instituted this whole system where restitution could be made for for our brokenness and so that we could come into god 's presence and and this, we needed mediators to be able to do that where Priests would have to come and on, on your behalf, sacrifice on your behalf, and, and, and make it possible for you to be clean before God and come into His presence. But Hebrews 9 tells us that, that all of that is fulfilled in Jesus. Jesus is a new high priest. He is the, the one who opens up and gives us access into the throne room of grace. Through Jesus, we can boldly walk into, into God's presence. God's presence, without any need of sacrificing lambs because Jesus was the ultimate sacrifice once and for all. Once and for all means that it's not something that needs to be done again and again and again and again, but that Jesus has fulfilled that His sacrifice is sufficient to, to bring peace between us and God. And then thirdly, Jesus fulfilled the moral laws by living an utterly perfect and stainless life. Not once did Jesus sin, not once did Jesus defy the Father, not once did he rebel against God's ways, God's law, God's character, God's nature. Jesus was a perfect representation, imprint of who God is. Jesus, God in in human form, Jesus, fully God, fully man, came to live amongst us and to live the perfect life as the perfect man. And so he fulfilled and demonstrated to us, this is what the character of God looks like. This is what the love of God looks like in human form. And he put that on display for us we can look at that and we can know, man, this is is, um, perfection exemplified in Jesus Christ. And so while the first two categories of law, civil law and ceremonial law, are fulfilled in Jesus and become redundant for us culturally, the third category of law, moral law, is a reflection of God's perfection. And as much as there's cultural redundancy in in those other two areas of law, because those have found fulfillment in other ways through Jesus, moral law is still something that is important to us. And so those are laws, moral laws are laws that we embrace as believers that we, that we look to Jesus for as, as our perfect plumb line. Um, th- th- those are laws that find continuation into the New Testament from the Old Testament. And the, those, are, those are really good things to us. When we think of fulfillment in that area... It's so easy for us, because the moral laws are still areas that are important to us, to slip into a mode of thinking where we might find ourselves saying, I need to live up to this standard to be acceptable to God. And I want to make it clear as much as James made it incredibly clear that we do not put a yoke, we don't put a burden on the Gentile believers to to follow the law, I want to make it clear that the New Testament doesn't put a yoke or a burden on us to follow moral law for salvation. William Tyndale, another reformer, he said this, he said, we are sinners not because we break the law, we break the law because we're sinners. And so he was saying, within us there is a brokenness that needs to be dealt with. Within us there's a, there, there is a corruption that God has come and met. But the reality is God has met that brokenness. Jesus has come to meet that brokenness. He fulfilled the law. He, fi- he fulfilled the law and it's civic and it's sacrificial, but also in its moral sense. And so that part of the law has been fulfilled for salvation. We don't don't make an effort to be morally pure because we think that that's the way we're going to receive salvation. But in the same way that Paul was adamant that he's that his life and his ministry would be a reflection of who God is and of Jesus' love, we're we're equally motivated to live lives that honor God in that way. The text goes on to say that Paul, um, when he went into the temple, Jews from Asia from Ephesus happened to be there and they recognized him and the whole thing went pear-shaped. Their plan bombed drastically. They, when, when these guys saw Paul, they immediately started spreading word amongst the people that Paul was there, that he had brought one of his Greek friends from Ephesus into the temple and a riot broke out. Agabus' prophecy that Paul would get arrested was fulfilled. Paul was arrested by the Jews. And this portion of Scripture ends with a mob of people shouting away with him, echoing the words that the Jews cried out when Pilate spoke to, spoke to the Jews, and he said to them, Behold your king, it's in John nineteen fourteen to 15 he says, Behold your king, this is your king, guys, who, this guy who claims to be the king of the Jews. And they cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. Paul's commitment to live a life that was a reflection of Jesus, ironically led him to a place where he also endured an unjust trial, where he also endured beating, flogging, being arrested and being shouted down by his own people away with him. On the, the precinct, the, on the, the edges of the temple mount, if you want to bring up that slide of the temple, there, there were courtyards where, where Gentiles were allowed to go because of because of animosity that had built up over the years between Jews and, and the nations around them they they put up signs around the temple you'll notice that there's a gentiles courtyard and that's where gentiles were tolerated and then you got the inner courtyard and the the front courtyard number 2 is called the woman's courtyard and and Jewish men and women could go in there and then then you got the, the inner, inner courtyards, the Holy of Holies. And, and the further you got into that, the, m- the more entitled you needed to be to be able to go in there. They, they actually put up signs along, along the, the balustrades where it says South Gates and North Gates. And th- th- they found one of these signs in, in the late 1800s. And there's an inscription on the sign and it says this, it says, just to, to, as a demonstration of the animosity that was felt, it says, No foreigner is to go beyond the balustrade and the plaza of the temple zone. Whoever is caught doing so will have himself to blame for his death, which will follow. And it's such an intense thing because the presence of God was so closely guarded, was so... Um, reserved for the few, and access into God's presence was, was something that most people were left out of. Years after Paul got arrested while he was imprisoned, and Paul from this point in the story onwards, in this point of the book of Acts, Paul is imprisoned for the gospel he writes to the book. He writes to the, the, the church in Ephesus, where these guys, these rumorous spreaders, probably came from, and he speaks about the the conflict between between Jews and Gentiles. He said, he said this. He says, now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for He Himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law. Guys, the magnitude of this should not be missed for us. Probably all of us are are Gentiles. Whether you're Gentile or not, each one of us comes from a distinct Familial culture, national culture, uh, generational culture. Yet Jesus has crossed all of those lines and he's come to meet you where you are today. And he's he is prepared to enter into the mess and the chaos of your life and bring his order bring his peace by breaking down the dividing wall of hostility. Jesus is prepared to come into our polarized views, into our inconsistencies, into our oversimplifications, and bring clarity, bring truth, bring his love. And each one of you, whether you know it or not, Jesus, is he's, he's entered in and he is at work. And what a thing. We can either kick against that or we can be like Paul and we can heal ourselves to God's will. Even if it means entering into difficult conversations. Even if it means entering into uncomfort- un- uncomfortable situations. I was meditating briefly on the, the fact that we may have 70 to 100 people from another church join, join us at Door of Hope. And I want to I encourage you guys, I want to exhort you guys to be reflective of, of this sentiment. To be reflective of Jesus and to break down any dividing walls that might exist. Um, Whether it's just the comfort of being with people that you're familiar with, or whether there are other things that maybe they like to do communion in a different way, or whatever it might be, and things that they may need to get used to, may we be a people who draw them in, May we be a people who embrace them, love on them, who, who are able to minister to their needs in a, in a season of, of challenge that they have come through. I was also thinking about our role in the community and, and thinking about how we love the people around us. Man, we're not called to put up walls between ourselves and, and the people around us. God's calling us to to break down those walls. And that's not always received well. It's not always, it, it, it's not always an easy thing to engage in those difficult conversations. But I know that by God's grace, even if it doesn't turn out the way we thought it might, like these elders plan to like, diffuse the whole situation by having Paul go through a thing, even if it doesn't go well, what we see in this story is that God used... Paul's Paul's arrest and his imprisonment to his own glory, and much of the New Testament that we have was written by Paul from prison, and we have that because of where he was at that time. And God can work through the brokenness of your life, and he can work in broken circumstances that you encounter. So let us commit ourselves to him, to his grace, and trust that he would work these things out for us as we seek to do his will.